Welcome to The Hammer Factor. I'm John Grace, your host here at The Hot Seat, and now it's time to light this fire. All right, well, welcome to this episode of The Hammer Factor. Our mission here at the show is to help successful athletes and professionals share their genius with the world. And whether you know it or not, Avery, you are a genius on many levels. Um, I love interviewing ultra runners. They're some of my, uh, my, my favorite athletes to, to put in the hot seat. And in this episode, we have one of the fastest in the world coming out of Steamboat, Colorado. Colorado. Welcome to the show, Avery Collins. Uh, thanks, dude. Actually, in uh, Silverton now. This will be one month ago. We've been lived here for a year. Okay, um, Silverton. To call me a genius, so I'll take it. <laughs> You're just moving up in elevation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Let's start this thing off, Avery. Tell us something about yourself that most people probably don't know. Oh, um, you know, I guess. I guess majority of people probably don't know that I grew up playing basketball and not running. I didn't start running until college. Um, and I think a lot of the competitive spirit in me came from, from basketball from when I was, I probably started playing when I was three or four through college. Um, and yeah, man, I, I think, I think most people would probably just assume if they don't know me very well that, you know, I've always been a runner. Um, and then I'm into, I'm just, I'm into a lot of different sports that, and not just running itself. So you're not very tall. How did you get into basketball? I was fast. <laughs> uh, yeah, man. I, I grew up in the Hoosier State. Like it's, it, it's basketball or it's nothing at all. And, uh, you know, I used to, I spent my summers as a kid in North Carolina. So I went to Wake Forest basketball camp for many years in a row. And, um, I don't know, man, basketball was definitely something I, I really enjoyed. Um, and I wasn't tall, no. Um, but at one point in time in high school, I actually could dunk, believe it or not. Um, what? Yeah. Uh, and now I think my my uh, ST fibers have taken over, and uh, I can't jump very high anymore. Touching the net is uh, is is hard enough. <laughs> how, how tall are you? Uh, about five seven, five seven and a half. <laughs> Dude, that's that's some ups if you're dunking at five seven. Yeah, and my mom will verify that for me. <laughs> yeah, I kind of baited you on that question because I'm from Indiana as well, so I'm fully aware of how basketball kind yeah. of rules. It's, it's awesome. Here in Silverton, our basketball court's covered in snow for seven months of the year, and there's only one. Um, it recently cleared, and Sabrina and I went and played um, played some horse a few times, but Honestly, for rest days, I like to go down and still shoot around. There's not really any pickup games here, but it's cool just to go down there and play one-on-one with Sabrina or shoot around for a little bit. Nice. What about uh, what about when you when you were a kid in Indiana? Obviously, you were playing basketball, but what else were you doing there? What were you like before you got into running long distance? I was actually really into more um, motorsports and and like I had I. In high school, we had a dirt bike and a three-wheeler, a couple of three-wheelers. Um, I would say I was more of, not that I was a motorhead, I just enjoyed I just enjoyed motorsports a lot more. Um, like I said, I also spent my, my summers growing up as a kid in North Carolina, so did quite a bit of surfing and skimboarding. Um, yeah, I mean, my, my childhood growing up was, it was, absolutely amazing i always i always look forward to the summers because i'd get to take off and spend the summer in north carolina with my grandparents and um the typical day consisted of our 
our buddy's dad dropping us off at the beach and we'd just stay at the beach for eight or nine hours until he was done with work and then he'd pick us back up and we'd love go get some and call it a day and just did that on repeat it was an absolute blast man I'm, I'm super fortunate for it and for the freedom that my grandparents gave me when i was uh you know a kid <laughs> <laughs> so how'd you go from surfing and moto sports and playing hoops to ultra running uh yeah pretty pretty simple answer man i just i was in college and i uh, didn't want to pay for a gym membership anymore and um i guess it'd be pretty safe to say i was burnt out on playing basketball i mean honestly by college i was just playing like men's league it, i wasn't playing for the school or anything um and i was just over it to some extent and then decided one day to go out for a run and ran to the end of our neighborhood and back and um honestly what i enjoyed most and and can like remember it all to this day is just the absolute struggle. It was only a mile and a half to the end of the neighborhood. Um, and I sat at the neighborhood for like 20 minutes, just completely wrecked thinking like, fuck, I have to run a whole home. I don't have my phone with me. Like this is really going to suck. Um, you know, obviously I made it back just fine. Um, but just, I think the one thing that just, uh, was, um, what created the passion was the just like the enduring part um how how difficult it was and honestly it was it was at the time i mean it's still that's that's what's humbling about running is it always it's always hard it always it always sucks and it's only as hard as you make it um so yeah man i mean it that's all it took was that first run and then um i haven't stopped uh and that so i started running when i was uh, 20. And then I did my first ultra when I was 21. And how old are you now? I am, I turned 28, uh, four days ago. Sweet. Happy birthday. Ah, uh, thank you. So a year later, what was your first ultra? It was the Blue Ridge double marathon. At the time it wasn't an official race. Um, now it, now you can officially sign up for the double marathon. Um, at the time it was just called an unofficial official. So you just, Started in a group, three or four hours, four hours, yeah, four hours before the the official marathon. You ran the loop and then restarted with uh, the rest of the marathoners. Okay, and how'd it go? Uh, pretty good. Um, I mean, for it being my first run, I think it went. I think it went pretty well. Um, I, I think like my overall time must have been eight and a half to nine hours. Like nothing special. Um, it was a road race. Um. I, you know, looking back now, it was it was hilly more than anything. Uh, at the time, it was a mountain race for me. Um, and yeah, same thing. I think that's what turned me on to to the ultra running. There was a couple things there. I think being new to the sport, um, I was pretty ignorant as to like the entire scene and and anyone and everyone that was doing it. And in college. I didn't like, I just didn't know it was a thing. So I thought what I was doing was a pretty big deal and was like something maybe nobody was doing. <laughs> not, not so much the case. Uh, and then, and then I just like the final miles of that race were terrible. I mean, they were incredibly painful. I was wearing um, the Saucony, uh, there were these tiny little racing flats that had a Velcro strap over the top. Um, I used to love those things, but I ran 54 miles in a pair of like, one mile racing flats, <laughs> so I was just wrecked at the end, just 
porn to <laughs> But obviously you were hooked. Oh, yeah, absolutely, dude. I mean, I just, there was just something so special about how much pain I was in. It was just, it was really incredible. And, um, like, my knees were, I couldn't bend my knees. They both were incredibly swollen after the race um, for about 24 hours. And, I mean, I think that's just all of it was, it was so new to me. Like, I just didn't realize that you could go through so much pain and just, like, keep going through it. Like, it's fine. Um, it was, and that's kind of what stuck. And so then, at some point, you transitioned to Colorado. When was that? Yeah, I mean, I, I did quite a bit of jumping around. Um, in the beginning, I was, for me, I was kind of chasing the this like running dream. Although I was masking it with school for my parents and my family, so they thought I was doing something. Uh, and so, so I went to Cape Fear Community College for a year and a half in uh, Wilmington, North Carolina. And then uh, I switched to online and moved back to Indiana for a brief period, about eight months, um, and worked at a running store there. And that was kind of the whole reason why I moved back out there was I figured maybe if I get in with this running store and they had an altered team, I can learn more and go from there. And that was exactly the case. I had uh, a great group of mentors, my, my buddy Chris Beck and Jason Robertson. They were phenomenal mentors for me and kind of like, taught me that I should treat the sport with respect and that, you know, you do a, you do a 50 K before you do a 50 miler and you do a 50 miler before you do a hundred K and you do a flat race before you do a mountain race. And like, that's how I approached the entire thing. Uh, and then I moved out to Charlotte after that stay in Indiana, kind of hoping to be a little closer to the mountains, um, mainly to be closer to Asheville. Cause I was going to Asheville quite frequently, quite frequently when I was living in Indiana. Um, and then moved to Colorado. So that was, um, 2014 was when I moved out to Colorado with uh, my buddy Devin. I was flat broke. I had 400 bucks to my name. Um, I had just went through a move from Charlotte back to the beach on the coast in Wilmington, and like I, I honestly didn't know what the hell I was doing. I really didn't. Um, like school was not going well at all. Um, my previous job wasn't great. Um, my situation with my roommate wasn't great. Like everything was just like, what the fuck? Um, and my buddy Devin shot me a message, uh, and said, Hey man, I saw you're signed up for run rabbit run 100 in steamboat Springs. Would you be interested in moving out there for the summer and training for it? And I was just like, fuck it, dude, I'll, I'll, I'll be out there next week. <laughs> um, I moved out there with 400 bucks, uh, 300 was for rent and 100 was for food for the month. Like I made, uh, it was, it was like hot dogs and ramen. <laughs> <laughs> Stepping back for a second, you mentioned that you had some really great mentors at that running store in Indiana. Tell me about the importance of, of what you got from them and, and maybe how it, just the importance of a mentor in general. I've seen a lot of the athletes that we've talked to at some point when they made the jump from thinking about doing something to actually going for it. A mentor was a big part of that. How'd that play into you and into your journey? Um, you know, when I first got into it, I thought my, my athletic, my like natural athleticism from basketball was just going to carry over and I could just, I could just, do this and I, I also had a somewhat of a road runner ass like look into it at first where I thought oh I see I see this dude just ran a hundred miles and his average pace was 11 minute pace like oh yeah I can run 11 minute pace all day <laughs> um, and, and and like that was like definitely like sheer ignorance I didn't know what was going on um, and 
Jason and especially my buddy Chris, uh, I mean, they kind of just show me that like you have to put work into it for it to actually work out. And honestly, they – so I did my first mountain run with them. Um, it's called Pitchell. It's this – do you know what Pitchell is? You live in Asheville. Oh, yeah. I live in Bent Creek right at the base of, of Mount Pisgah. So. And, and I've actually done that run before. So, Dude, so, so they took me out to do my first Pitchell ever. Um, and it was just this massively humbling, humbling experience because I'd done all these races and, and like every time I thought I was getting somewhere and doing something, they kind of reminded me that like, <laughs> no, you're just getting started. And I, I just feel like they kept, kept me humble and kept me kind of continuously reaching. Um, but obviously there were little things along the way like nutrition and footwear and gear. Um, but I just appreciate them just being great friends and you know people at the time that I could go out and run with and um you know when I first got into it I had a lot of questions I asked a lot of questions and um while I knew I had this potential that was untapped I knew I needed a little bit of guidance to find it um and that and they were there for me for that did you do any of the other trails like the Art Loeb trail or any of the other ones around the Asheville zone when you were creeping around here man you know I still come out to Asheville like once a year, but I always, I always run the same stuff, man. I always, I park at uh, the Folk Art Center. Yeah. I hop on MST and I run towards Mount Mitchell because I feel like that's just like all that stuff and like the what is it the Buncombe Horse Trail that's mm-hmm. just like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like Quest for the Crest trails and then the MST are typically what I what I run when I come out there. Um, I'll tell you what, one trail I did run that I hadn't ran before. Um, my girlfriend Sabrina and I drove out a couple years ago to spectate Hellbender, um, and I believe it's the first climb of the race. We we ran that. It was like a forty-two or forty-three hundred foot climb out of Black Mountain. I was like, holy shit! I didn't know you could <laughs> think of a climb out here. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Aaron Saft, a good buddy of mine, puts that event on. It's. I hope that happens this year. Oh man, yeah, absolutely! It's on my list, man. I really want to do it. So. You mentioned a little bit about that first race, you know, doing that double marathon and just feeling that suffering and even in your first run. So what draws you to that? Like it, that seems fully counterintuitive to the, to like, to the pain side, like just, just dropping into the suffer zone. And, and that's kind of the goal. Like what draws you into that? Um, so, I mean, I think, I think anybody can relate to this. When when something traumatic is going on in your life or when something hurts or when like all shit hits the fan, what do you focus on? That. Like that's all you focus on. That's it. Like when you when you unfortunately owe so much money to the IRS and all these bills or whatever whatever problem you have going on, like it's just just kind of natural to focus on that one thing and that's what that's like that's the beauty of running an ultra race and especially something like 100 miles where you know you're just depleting your body of everything and like all you're trying to do is just make it that's it um and because it's so um physically intensive or like it's it's a labor intensive physically intensive mentally intensive like it takes everything out of you like it requires 100% focus and that's what i enjoy about it is this peace because i don't 
I don't have time, and neither does anyone else that's typically running a 100-mile race. They don't have time to be thinking about anything else that's going on at home, going on in their work life, which maybe maybe in the time, like in the present moment when you are out there suffering, you probably can't, can't look at it this way or realize that what you're doing is one of the most peaceful things ever, but that's what it is. I mean, this 100% focus on just eating, drinking, and moving forward, it, it, it creates this complete and utter presence just with nothing else. And that's, that's what I enjoy most is just, that's it. Just the nothing, the nothingness about it. Um, and, and, you know, I, I probably would have answered that question a little bit differently six or seven years ago. Um, I think that's an easier question for me to answer now. Like why, why do I gravitate towards, um, difficult things because as you do more and more of it you build the calluses and it it becomes easier and you know what to expect and you know like I just go into 100 miles and I know for a fact it's gonna suck man like that's just that it's just gonna suck and no matter how trained you are mile 60 it's gonna suck for a bit mile 70 is gonna suck for a bit mile 80 to 100 every last step is gonna suck but you're going to figure it out and you're just going to keep pushing through it because you don't really have a choice. Um, That's what you signed up for. (laughs) Yeah. 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 What about different sports experience a flow state in, in different ways? Uh, Just with my experiences and talking to various athletes, it seems like it's different. Where, where in ultra running do you find that flow state and how would you define it? You know, I, I think there's, there's definitely a couple different ways that can go. I think there's two different things that happen in a race, and it's very seldom that you're kind of right in the middle, especially with a really long ultra race. You're either at a really, really low point or a really high point. Those really high points is like obviously adrenaline is flowing. It's a natural flow state. It's much easier, easily obtainable when it feels good. It's when it sucks the most when – you know, your hip flexor is getting tight, your knee hurts, you rolled your ankle twice, and you forgot to eat in the last hour, so you're hitting the wall. Um, I, like, that's that's the most enjoyable, like, flow state for me. Like, no matter what, when you're deep into the race, fatigue is going to set in. You know, lactic acid is going to build. Um, and then it's finding a way to kind of persevere through that, ignore it, and while all of this pain is accumulating, it's accruing, and you can it's still it's still there, it's still present. But it's when you figure out how to just ignore it and keep going, that is like that's that's flow state, man, is when when it absolutely sucks, but for some reason you're still doing the same pace you were doing at the beginning of the race. Mm. Um, and like how to achieve that. You know, there's no like, there's no secret method or recipe. Like, you just have to go out when it sucks, and you need to and and, and just deal with it. You know, when it's, I'm not saying put yourself in unsafe um, situations, but like, you know, if it's pissing down rain outside, that doesn't mean you can't go run. If it's snowing and two degrees outside, that doesn't mean you can't go run. Like, all of that kind of stuff just makes racing that much easier. Um, and just, you know, it's, it's just one of those things that builds up over time. You have to be willing to put in the hours to be great at it, you know. My, like, you know, Michael Jordan didn't get good by just playing for an hour or two a day. He got good by playing for four or five hours a day. Well said. 
I'm sure you've met these people and they've asked you about this. I know that I have, and someone's done a couple half marathons. Maybe they've went up to the marathon and, but they're just like, I can't do a 50 miler. Even though they want to in their head, they've just put up this limitation. Is there any advice that you could give someone who's like itching to do it, itching to take it up into that eight, 10 hour run zone or something, but they're holding themselves back? Man, I think the most important thing is to find something that inspires you first. Um, you know, coaching our athletes, uh, we'll have people that, you know, especially even like right now with the whole COVID thing, like feel the need to prove themselves and like and and show, prove their identity, which is kind of made up around running, um, and sign up for races that are like like they don't really care about they're just doing it so they can put the miles in um so i think the first like if you're looking to run 50 miles or do your for even your first ultra like a 50k you probably should find something that inspires you um whether that be something that's out of the state somewhere you've never been um and then from a training perspective you know if it's your first one maybe just go into it with the goal of finishing it and you know it's as if you want to look at it in the most simplistic perspective possible as far as training goes, you know, you're just adding, you're just adding aerobic low intensity time to your training. Keep whatever speed stuff you've already been doing in the past. You don't even need to increase it. Just build a larger aerobic base, which means instead of on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, going out for 40 minutes, go out for 50 minutes for the first few weeks and then go out for 60 minutes for the next few weeks. And that base is just going to get built, just going to build and get stronger and stronger. Yeah. Your body will react. Yeah. And if you enjoy running that much, like you're only going, like this is going to be something that you're going to look forward to. I mean, you're just asking yourself to go spend more time doing something you like. So obviously the mountain running drew you. I mean, it seems like you moved to Colorado and now you're even further up in the mountains. What is it about running through the mountains? Uh, the unknown around every single corner, man. I mean, especially here, it's just, ah, man, it's just so rewarding to get to the top of a mountain around here because you get up there and there's like, you can see 300 more mountains. So like just the San Juan Mountain Range is 354 13ers. So like that's the one thing that just always keeps me going. And it's just this like curiosity of, of, oh, can I connect this mountain to this mountain and this mountain to this mountain? And then like, and I suppose what could be like a semi-egotistical way, I like to do these runs that I, that perhaps maybe no one's ever done before or maybe only a few people have ever done them because especially out here, like you can do that. You can put together these runs without having, using any trails um, or service roads, just going kind of straight up and down, just creating your own route on the mountain, which is the most, artistic and fun part for me is just like maybe doing something that someone else hasn't done yet. Yeah. I read a really interesting article in SB nation, um, about your attempts at tour. I'll include that in the show notes for people. It's a really good article. It's a long read, but it's really good. I, I recommend anybody who's listening to check that out. I'll put it in the show notes, but what is, what is, let's start with what is, what is tour? Yeah, man. Um, so tour is well, tour is short for tour de jean um or the um tour of the giants uh it's a 200 mile 
or so loop around the Aosta Valley in northern Italy. It starts in Cormier uh, at the base of Mont Blanc. Um, the Tour of the Giants basically means um, you're running along the bases of all of the basically largest mountains in uh, Europe, um, which is like, to name a few, Mount, Mount Rosa, um, that's a 15er, Matterhorn, Mont Blanc, um, I don't know all of them. I believe there's like five or six 15ers that you run along the base of. Uh, the 200-mile route itself, you go over 33 passes, 32, 33 passes, or what they call their coals, um, which accumulates to 92,000 feet of vertical gain. Um, it's just a big, big, big mountain adventure. Uh, they give you, I believe, seven or eight days to finish it. Um, it's more than enough time for most people as long as they train to some extent because they have these phenomenal um, life bases or just really glorified aid stations that um, have showers and cots to sleep on and all the Italian food you can eat, uh, <laughs> eat champagne, wine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not like if you're a person looking for adventure and not so much competition, tour is something you can do. If you're a person looking for competition and adventure, tour is something to do. Like it kind of caters, it caters to everybody. Um, and it's just uh, – it's a world, world, world-class event, man. Um, the flagging, the marking, it's nearly – I get lost at, I would say, four out of five races I do. And um, I didn't get lost 200 miles in my sleep-deprived state of Tour de Jean. So that's – there's something to be said for that. So you had a pretty interesting race here at the Tour. Can you yeah, – yeah. can you – before we get into the race, can you – tell our listeners what happened in the in the lead up obviously you had this thing as a goal for some period of time you put in months of time to get ready for it and then what happens leading up to it uh yeah uh so sabrina and i were uh living out of a camper for the summer and we're on our way to return it to our buddy's house um he had let us borrow it for the summer to train out of in the san juan we weren't um permanently living here at the time and uh, on the way back to Kansas, just two miles, two miles from our destination, after nine hours of driving, we were um, completely cleaned by a semi truck. Uh, we were just on a little two lane highway, getting ready to turn left, and the semi truck went to pass us in the oh. oncoming track. So as we were turning left, he went to pass us, and then essentially T boned us uh, at 60, 65 miles an hour. Um, and it definitely cleaned us pretty good. Um, and just, uh, definitely created some, uh, some major adjustments internally, um, and, uh, skeletally in my body before, uh, we took off for Italy. I mean, at the time, you know, it honestly, like not for a split second did that ever occur to me that something may have happened, um, internally or like any, because like. There was no blood, you know, the, nothing, none of the scary stuff that comes with car accidents. You know, we walked away from it fine, um, or, or so I thought so. And we took off to Italy, and, um, you know, the week leading up to the race, I started getting this um, tightness or pinching feeling in my lower back. And, you know, honestly, I, and even then, I didn't, I didn't even think about the car accident. Like, I was just thinking, oh, it's a, new, it's, it's a bed. It's not our bed. We're renting this Airbnb. Like, I'm probably just not sleeping well from – uh, from the bed and, um, it was, it's crazy. Like 
my buddy that was doing um, the, the filming uh, for tour um, at like mile 18, there's this shot of me coming up this little climb and I'm just like, dude, my back is so tight. And like, I don't even remember saying that. And like, then it just kind of all hit me. Like this, like, it was, uh, after seeing my, my PT who basically saved me, um, you know, it, it, it made sense um, that the, the car accident played a pretty major role. And then, um, running toward only kind of compiled the issues um, because just just halfway through the race I was dealing with the incredibly swollen ankles and just a, a whole assortment of issues which you know everybody everybody kind of deals with that it's a it's it's a long race like that stuff's just naturally gonna happen it's just uh, the getting hit by a semi truck didn't help by any means and so you never went to the doctor or anything before the event no we we went to um, like more, more just to be safe. We went to an urgent care for them just to check us real quick. Um, but like that was in route to driving up to Washington to catch a flight. So like it wasn't, it was just more for insurance purposes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was no x-rays done or, you know, anything <laughs> thorough. Like feel around your head make sure there's no cuts. Um, follow my finger. Can you, yeah, you know, do you know your ABCs, that sort of thing. So how did the race go for you? How did you finish? Did you finish? How did how did it go? Uh, you know, it was it was one of my not so good performances uh, ever. <laughs> um, it was I yeah I I, I finished. It, it required a a lot of digging deep. Um, it's crazy because like directly after the race, what I saw was the position I finished in as opposed to like the race I had. And, and what I mean was after my buddy edited, edited the docu-series, I saw, you know, episode two or three or whatever, like there was a point in which I was in fifth or sixth place, 120, 130 miles into the race. It's not like I wasn't like out of the race by any means. Um, it's just that when I, when I was in the race, it, like it was so miserable and I was suffering so hard that like I couldn't see beyond that. I just, all I saw was like, I'm moving slow as shit. I can't get going. Everything's swollen. I want to fall asleep. Like all this, all these, I don't know. I, mean, I guess you could call them excuses for sure. Um, and I couldn't see outside the box. And I, I think that was the ultimate struggle of the entire race for me was like grasping onto a positive um, state of mind. I, I was just, I was just so upset with myself from, you know, really just like mile 20 on um, due to just like, a bad, just a, an overall bad performance and that didn't help me at all like I probably could have done better had I stayed a little more positive and that's like definitely something that I'm going to take moving forward um but that was something I had never dealt with before either like I've never really I've always been stoked to to be out racing and um and it's not that like I was like throwing a pity party because I wasn't winning the race I was I was more or less throwing a pity party because I was having a shitty race like that's just all there. It, it, it would be one thing if I'm getting beat and I'm running a good race. And like, I'm always one to admit that, but I was getting beat and just like, just having a terrible time. <laughs> How long did it take you? Uh, it took 86, 86 hours. And ultimately I finished in 11th place. 86 hours. So you get done with the race. Things just didn't work out for you the whole time. When, and when did you figure out there was more physically wrong with you? How did that discovery happen? Uh, not till we got back to the States. So we were, 
you know, honestly, I couldn't feel anything, anything wrong with me the the weeks. So we stayed in Italy for another couple weeks after the race. Um, Sabrina did a race uh, at uh, at Lake Como, um, and you know, I went out for some long bike rides, some really fun bike rides. Didn't feel anything wrong, um, and then I would say once once we got back to the states, I tried my first run maybe three or four weeks post race. Um, and instantly knew like my back was quite painful. Um, and I went through a whole slew of methods of trying to fix that such as chiropractor and massage. Um, and nothing got done for a couple months. And then finally I went to, um, a PT, a buddy of mine named Steve. Um, and he, yeah, he worked some incredible magic. He's, he's an absolutely phenomenal PT. Um, and uh, after just a few sessions, I was running again. And then after a few months, I was back in the full swing of training again. Um, that's still, like my back is still a constant. I still have to battle it. I mean, it's still, I have to stay on top of stretching, rolling out. I still see the PT anywhere from one to four times a month, just kind of depending on what's going on. Um, yeah, it's... Like I, th- I think it's something I'm probably forever gonna have to just manage at this point. Um, yeah. What was the diagnosis? Um, mainly just a shifted shifted pelvis. Um, hips were unaligned. I had a few vertebrae that were not in place. I had an ankle bone that was popped out. My knee wasn't right, and two displaced ribs. So you had this going on. This the. All these injuries happened before the 200 miler. You ran the uh, 200 miler with this going on. It's hard to say. I don't know. I have no idea. Um, this is all. This is all. I found this out after tour. So you know, could have. It could have very well happened during tour. Like I, pulled <laughs> the races. <laughs> yeah, I, I somehow I imagine it didn't happen. I think the semi probably had a little bit of an adjustment on you. That is epic, dude. How do you deal with injuries, man? Like I've talked to several, you know, I'm going to get to a question here in a little bit. Like what's the lowest, you know, moment of your career. Let's just jump into that throughout your career. What's been the lowest moment of your ultra running? Oh, yeah. Like honestly, probably, (laughs) probably at tour. I mean, I know, I know that's all we've been talking about and I'd love to, I'd love to give another example um, but I mean, we've all, we've all been in this moment before. It doesn't even have to relate to racing. It's, it's, it's this moment where we're not doing what we're capable of. And, and it's like out of, out of, well, for me at the time it was out of my grasp. Like there was nothing I could do. Um, so, so to know, to know, to know what I should be doing and what I could be doing and I'm not doing it. And it's just, uh, like it's enough. It's a disappointment to myself, and it was a disappointment to myself. Uh, and, and more so, I felt as if I was disappointing um, Sabrina, who had come out there, and Jeremy, my buddy who was filming. His dad came out. Like I felt disappointing them as well. Um, and that's like that's the worst, man. Feeling like you dis- you're disappointing other people is like it's so infuriating. Um, and especially when I know, I know what those people think of me. I know how highly they think of me and I know what they expect out of me. And now I'm not even, even doing close to what they even expected. Um, 
yeah, so I, I would say in, in that moment, that moment came pretty vividly near the halfway marker of, of tour. Like I, I kind of realized, Oh fuck, I'm not going to podium this race. What, how about the healing process? How was that for you? Um, it, it was hard. It was really hard at times. You know, I've, I've, I've found ways to kind of like cope with injury and also recover from, from a running season through, cross training and also doing a lot of, um, split boarding and snowboarding in the mountains. Um, specifically to like the healing process after tour, that was, it was brutal. I, I did a, so I did a lot of split boarding at the time we were living in steamboat. So I climbed up Mount Werner nearly daily, if not a couple times a day on my split board. Um, the fact that I couldn't run was really tough. I would say, once to twice a month, complete and utter breakdowns. Um, I would say I heavily, heavily relied upon Sabrina to kind of be there to comfort me because there was definitely a lot of thoughts of like, did I really just spend the last six years of my life to work towards something that I may not be able to do anymore? Like it was that real. My, I could like it was hard to sleep. It, it hurt to walk, let alone run. Like it was incredibly painful just to walk. So. I'm sitting here thinking like I dropped out of college. I moved to Colorado. I've put every last dollar and dime I've ever had into this. And is it all over now? Like, and I found myself looking at bikes and bike races, like trying to find this alternative form of adventure to Mm -hmm. kind of fill, fill the place of running. And like, do I expect to do this forever? I mean, I hope so, but maybe not. But did I expect it to be six years and done absolutely not so at the time that was pretty difficult to deal with um and the only coping mechanism at the time was um was snowboarding um and and, you know luckily i found some really good help through through my pt man it's amazing how so many of the athletes we've interviewed here injury is such a hard thing to deal with so many things it seems like you can deal with anything but when you're laid up, man, it just is a compounding effect. Yeah, worse, man. And like, there's there's injuries that you kind of grow accustomed to with the sport, like you know, hamstring pulls and maybe a little bit of ITB problems. Maybe your ankle's tender, and that shit, like you can kind of see it, and you're like, oh, this is cool. Like I know I can work through this. I've got this. When it's when it's like this incredibly painful feeling where like you can't even walk that's when it's like whole it was a whole nother level of of oh shit (laughs) yeah my life's got to change now yeah yeah Yeah. let's flip the switch what's at the top what's one of your proudest moments or or sticks out as as some of your favorite achievements in the sport oh um you know my hurt 100 my the most recent I've, i've ran hurt twice my second time running hurt was um as, as about as close to flawless of a race I had ever had, which was pretty awesome. It's an amazing feeling. Um, I'd say the only thing that went wrong was at the beginning I took a wrong turn, classic. Uh, um, I mean, I didn't go too far, of course, I because I already knew the course. I was like, oh, shit, this isn't right, and turned around. Um, but, like, altogether, um, yeah, it was just uh, it was just one of those days where you know not a not a whole lot went wrong and a lot of things went right. And then you know the best part was um, Sabrina was out there and so were my parents. My mom and um, stepdad have only 
only been able to come to a few of my races and uh, for him to come out to Hawaii and watch one of the sweetest, most beautiful epic races out there. Like that was, that was awesome. And, and they got to see, like they didn't have to deal with me and like absolute suffer fest because it went so well. I was in and out of aid stations in like 30 seconds. So something telling me and my parents have a very jaded perspective of how these things typically go. <laughs> so, you kind of had an aha moment out there in this race. Like, what do you attribute it going so well to? What do you think, like, if you could offer our listeners, you know, some takeaway from that to having that near perfect race, what was it? Patience. Patience. Yeah. Um, and I think that's something that you could probably apply to just about anything. Uh, you know, after I, after I got lost, I dropped back to maybe like third place or fourth place and like, it, and, and, and I've had this revelation before at URA 100 after getting lost and dropping back to last. It's 100 miles is a long race. Like, be patient. Um, like, you have nothing but time, and, and, and it only pays off to just remain patient and keep it, keep everything at a very conservative pace until you feel and know it's time to, to turn it up a notch. Um, so I guess, I guess the aha would just be just, remaining patient i mean that's something i've i've tried i've had to get better at my entire life i was incredibly impatient as a child um and i still have those moments but um yeah it's something always to be working towards is like being a more patient person burning calories and eating is a big part of ultra running more so than really most any sport that we interview athletes here and nutrition and just keeping things working on your body so important what's your style are you uh you know some people are all whole food some people are all about the gels you know how do you how do you balance it out both when you're in an event and just through normal life what's your diet like yeah man um i would say just kind of everything in moderation um I mean, we we eat a lot of vegetables and a lot of fruits but we also i mean we also eat chicken and steak and sausage not not in in excess, but like everything kind of more in, in moderation and just like basing it on how I feel. And I noticed when my body craves something and when it craves something, like like if I really, really want a pizza, then it's probably because I really need to eat a pizza. Right. <laughs> um, I, I just, and I mean, if there's anything, and then like in a race, as far as racing goes, um, I typically try to do kind of like this half and half concept of like half fat, half sugar. Um, so I, I run from your energy. So I'm typically eating sunflower, sunflower gels or like cashew lemon gels one every hour. And then, um, as far as like aid station fare goes, like I'll usually have avocado if they have it, potatoes, peanut butter and jelly, any, those three are definitely staples or like bacon. Um, they're all super easy to run with and eat while running. Um, but I try to keep it fast and simple. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think PB and J is like the miracle food food to be perfectly honest. (laughs) I tend to agree with you. It's hard to beat. Yeah. it, It digests easy for me. Um, but I mean, we get, I get creative, you know, during the summer when we're running, like, and, and Mira knows this, like, I can't just eat Mira gels every day, all day, you know, like, that's 
that's not healthy and that sounds terrible. So I'll get creative and like right now, um, I'm eating fig bars on every run. Um, we get these gluten free fig bars that are super bomb. Um, but that, that'll change, man. Like next week I might be eating Oreo cookies. Uh, and then the week after that I might be living on bananas. I mean, it's just, and I think that just, you know, kind of just makes your stomach a little bit stronger and more well-rounded to eating whatever. Um, but I think calories are calories. If all I have is like hummus and wraps, then that's what I'm going to have before I go for a run. Like it, whatever it is at the end of the day, your body's going to adapt and adjust to it. So food is food. Um, but you know, keeping it like fairly clean and healthy is good. I, I mean, luckily where we live here in Silverton, there's no, um, there's no fast food, everything close. Well, obviously everything's closed right now, but even when everything is open, um, this time of the year, like gas station closes at seven. Um, the tiny little grocery store closes at seven. Most restaurants close at like eight or nine. So like there's not a lot of, um, like temptation to go grab a quick Taco Bell or like Dairy Queen Blizzard, um, cause that used to be one of my worst when we lived in steam. I used to go get DQ blizzards once or twice a week. <laughs> what about how many events do you do? How many race, how many big races do you do a year? Typically? Um, four or five. And I, I like to do everything. So I just like try to sprinkle in a little bit of every distance in there. So let's say that you have a hundred miler coming up in four months. What does your training look like? getting ready for that basically as far as volume intensity like what kind of trails do you try and get in there give us your overall thinking and you can pick a specific race um yeah um so yeah so, so say we're doing say we're doing like utmb for four months from now um you know typically once once i get into this this time of the year my like very focused kind of zone four zone five uh, efforts like speed efforts start to dwindle a little bit more and I start to take all that speed and apply it more into tempo efforts zone three efforts um, so the first four weeks of that 16 weeks would be um, you know like running 15 ish miles a day um, I, I would say about 40% of the miles per week are going to be tempo effort um, so like I guess what I would equate to race pace. Um, and then 60% is going to be like super easy recovery effort. Just go out and have fun. Um, and then I try to like build the vertical effort alongside the mileage. Um, I typically do a three, three weeks on one week off. Um, the week off is about 50% less than the big week. Um, vertical is something I never really cut out at all. Um, on average, um, for, so it's like something like UTMB, those first four to, four to eight weeks, I'd probably be doing about 20 to 22,000 feet a gain a week. And then, um, the kind of like the biggest bulk weeks eight through 13, um, I would be doing 28 to 40,000 feet a gain a week. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think if, if anyone was looking to take anything away, I would say that, you know, just, you know, up to that 16 weeks, you need to build a big aerobic base. You need to also 
once a week, get some kind of an anaerobic workout in. That way, when you go into this specific training period, um, or what's often referred to it as the utilization period, you can take all these things that you've been using as tools and put them to work in this 16-week period. And more often than not, you you, you want to be running this kind of like race pace effort. Um, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of hard to say what I would do for 16 weeks without like putting it on paper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> When is your biggest week? How many weeks out from the event? Typically, so I've got for like for a hundred miles, I have this magic number of seventeen days out. I start the taper. So like the seventeen to twenty-two days out, those five days or seventeen to twenty-four, either way you want to look at it, those are those are the biggest biggest days. Um, I think so. Like last year for Fat Dog, my biggest week was like one sixty maybe 165 with like 45k of climb um when you're doing 40k of climb how many hours is that how many hours are is it take you to put that in for a week yeah in a week um damn that's a great question because it's been a while since i've done that uh <laughs> honestly probably like 30 hours yeah. kind of take again about 30 hours or so um i mean with the whole covid thing I've just been doing kind of just this like prolonged um, base period or maybe I guess you could even say a prolonged transition period. Um, I was split boarding and honestly getting a ton of vertical and staying pretty fit through the winter and then um, basically just used that fitness with a couple runs a week to go into this transition period where I was just doing 70 to 75 miles a week with 20,000 feet of climb. And then the whole COVID thing hit. So I've, I've literally just kind of stuck to 70 to 75 a week with 20K for the last um, like six, seven weeks. Um, and then, you know, we've uh, we've we've been scheming, Sabrina and I have been scheming up some plans. So I, I think come late, late May, early June, I'll pump that up and start to see, you know, more 90 to 115 mile weeks. And when's your ne- what's your next event if you can actually if it actually happens? Oh uh, yeah, you, from an event perspective, I'm not really sure what's going on. Tour de Jean hasn't been canceled yet. Um, I, I don't have a lot of uh, hope that that's like I just don't foresee it really happening at this rate. I mean, we'll see. Um, and then Sabrina and I got uh, got elected to do this race called the Snowman Race in Bhutan. Um, it follows the snowman trekking route. Uh, the King of Bhutan has basically granted permits so that uh, 25 runners can be the first people ever to run on the trail. Um, as of right now, that's it. It's a it's a 200 mile stage race, and you go over 14 passes, 12 of them 16,000 feet, and two of them 18,000 feet. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, really pumped. I, once again, it's like I'm not really sure if the race is is a go or not. Um, and then, yeah, otherwise we're just going to, I definitely am going to do some local FKTs. I'll probably go for Mount Sneffels, which is a 14 er uh-huh. um, 40 minutes from here. Um, I've been contemplating Tony Kropichka's record on, um, Eolus and Wyndham. There's three 14 ers It's Eolus, Wyndham, and, um, I think Twilight or something. Oh, yeah, I think it's called Twilight. I always forget the name of it. Anyways, it's like a 44 mile route. looks like a lot of fun. Um, and then, um, definitely a, a, a high probability of Nolan's. Nolan's. Okay. 
I know some of those mountains. San Juans are definitely my favorite mountains in Colorado. They're hard to beat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really impossible. <laughs> where does where does cannabis fit into your training and your lifestyle? Uh it's it's uh daily a daily thing. Um Yeah, I mean, I I'm an, I'm a big advocate of of using cannabis honestly for a, lar- a large majority of my runs. Um you know, I used to have like a rhyme or reason, like, you know, doing it for just mainly easy and recovery runs or long runs. Um, but I found now it's just a majority of the runs um, just because it's enjoyable. Um, it's not that it makes you any faster or slower. Like if you're going to have a shit day, you're just going to have a shit day. That's just the way it goes. But the beauty is, uh, you know, if you take a few edibles, go out and have a shit day, like it could still be a lot of fun. Um <laughs> Like you learn to just like enjoy what's like, especially right now during COVID, like to just be able to be outside is like, that's just something to be grateful for. Um, and as, as cheesy and cliche as it sounds, and I try not to be that person and I don't think I am, I will say that when I use, when I use cannabis, if I, if I take edibles or smoke before a run, man, it, it's, it just allows me to be so appreciative and grateful for for literally everything, man. I just, just to be outside, to, to live in Silverton, Colorado, um, to have a nice place and to have an amazing girlfriend. And like, for what, for whatever reason, it like, you don't tend, I don't tend to maybe be as grateful for some of that stuff without the presence of cannabis, which is one of the, you know, the great parts about it for, for me. There is a, you are sponsored by a cannabis company and this is a trend that I'm seeing in athletes, mountain biking, whitewater kayaking, so on and so forth. Um, but you were one of the early advocates for cannabis and trail running. Were you nervous? I, I don't want to say coming out, but just going public with cannabis use and training and partnering with a cannabis company. Was that nerve wracking or was it just supernatural or did you like tell your parents first? How did all that come to play uh, so yeah I mean the only thing that made me nervous would have been uh, the fact that like I kind of I accepted the fact that I may not get a shoe sponsor because of this ever or for a long time and that I accepted that was probably the more nerve-wracking part now on the other hand we're talking about the cannabis industry like there's a lot of money in the cannabis industry so I you know on the other side I, I thought, well, look, like there's a good opportunity here for me to be able to do what I love and then also show people that like I'm, I'm representing a much larger population than people think, <laughs> like much larger population than people think. And if you come to Colorado, good luck finding a runner who doesn't use cannabis. It's pretty rare. Um, so, you know, there, there wasn't a whole lot of nerves there. Um, I'll tell you what I was nervous for was the very first article I ever did on cannabis was a uh, um, front page shot on the Wall Street Journal of me smoking a joint. That was a little like my par- I told my parents <laughs> and my was going to be in the Wall Street Journal. I didn't tell them I was going to be smoking a joint on the front page. Um, so that I had to deal with the consequences from that, um, which was pretty wild. But you know, overall, it's it's been great and you know I'm seeing 
I'm see- just like you. I'm seeing this trend and this change, especially especially in the CBD um, market space. Like obviously, there is a lot of CBD companies now. There's a lot of athletes endorsing it, especially um, in the more like endurance extreme sports market, such as like surfing and wakeboarding and mountain biking like these are all the men and women that are like typically sponsored by some kind of a cbd company um but you know i'm not there hasn't been like a huge thc per se push yet um obviously i'm a i'm I'm a proponent for that and uh cbd as well um but yeah man i was i was really excited it was something it actually wasn't really my idea to be sponsored by cannabis companies. My buddy Ryan Cronk actually proposed the idea to me. He was working for a consulting company, um, and he got me on board with them. And then after that, you know, the ball kind of started rolling, and um, I just got introduced to some really amazing people that kind of allowed me to find um, these companies to work with. Um, one of those being Jim McAlpine of the 420 Games. Um, through him, I got to meet Ricky Williams and um, some other cannabis NBA advocates, um, and like all of these connections have kind of built up naturally, um, just like just through being um, just through being myself. Like that's that. It hit nothing, nothing too crazy. So, how did you? What did your parents say when you got the? Did you get a call? Well, we got the journal, Avery, and <laughs> how did that go yeah. down? Dude, I don't remember. What Mom said it was it was not important. Uh, she was not like, oh, she opened it up on her computer at work to read the article for the first time, and all her coworkers were all stoked and waiting to look at it too. And she opened it up, and there I am smoking a joint, and like she had no idea that was coming, and she was at work. <laughs> <laughs> oh, every time I every time I laugh or make a noise, it steps on your audio, so I'm just trying to hold it in, but. That is freaking hilarious, dude. We're gonna have to have your mom on the show at some point. Yeah, yeah. I don't remember what she said. I know. I know she said something to the effect that she was at work when she opened that up, and that she, I could have warned her that I was gonna be smoking a fatty. So, <laughs> what amongst the ultra running community? I, I imagine it's pretty largely accepted. Have you had any conversations with people like other shoe companies and various things that they've been like, ah, we just can't touch that right now? Um, the broader industry, what have what have the vibes been there? Yeah, man, you, you like yes. When you say the broader industry, I'm assuming you're kind of just referring to the run industry specifically. And yeah, there has been a lot of barriers uh, industry. Um, I've had multiple shoe companies specifically say, uh, "You're a great athlete." and we want you on the team but um which has been very very upsetting at times um i'm not going to name any companies but there has been particular companies that have gotten in trouble for for breaking official uh usada and water rules and i'm not breaking any rules and yet they won't endorse me which makes zero sense whatsoever it's it's so let's just put it this way it's okay if you take steroids but you smoke pot that's our problem, which is absolutely absurd. It makes no sense. Um, now, with that being said, I am uh, with the Solomon Pro Squad this year, um, which is which is awesome. In the past, I was with Innovate. They were they had no problem with my cannabis affiliation. Um, you know, I have to be uh, 
a little bit smart being under Solomon as far as like just, you know, being clean and respectful, which I've always been. Um, and, but like at the end of the day, like what people don't realize is like, there's no rules broken. You're allowed to use THC while you're training as much as you want under every single rule. Um, the only rule is you can't use during competition and you're supposed to stop within 12 hours of competition. And I would suggest to most people that maybe you give it a few more days than 12 hours. Like 12 hours is definitely a little risky. Um, but like, it's, it's just, uh, it's crazy. The, cause I still see articles pop up online that people will post on like the trail and ultra running page, um, of me. And like people will comment in there and be like, Oh, he's cheating. He's cheating. And it's, and it's just like, you literally don't you have no idea what's going on. Like you don't even know what the rules are. <laughs> Do you think this stigma is ever it's the weirdest stigma to me, and I've watched it play out my whole life. Do you think I mean, is there a, a breakthrough finally happen happening or, or is it just gonna continue to be this weird stigma? It's the weirdest of all stigmas. I mean those same those same shoe companies, and this is not just in the running industry, this is I mean, probably all industries. I definitely know in the outdoor industry as a whole. But, like, no one will frown upon you taking a picture of sipping an ice-cold Sierra Nevada at the top of the hill when you had a great run or whatever. But it is so incredibly frowned upon to, like you say, you know, just be popping an edible or whatever. Do you ever see this balance happening, or is this just something the way it's always going to be? Oh, yeah, I I think... It's slowly but surely destigmatized. Yeah, that balance is coming. Um, I think it's going to make its greatest leap when the NFL or NBA finally make that move, saying, hey, if you are employed by a team that's in a legal state, you may now use as you wish. Because guess what? You're a fucking adult, and you live in a legal state. Um I think that's where the greatest successes are going to come when when these huge sports industries can get behind it. Um, I mean, as far as like from a running perspective goes, you know, I understand it's probably like the stigma is probably still there in the Midwest and places where it's not legal. Um, it's very, 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 very different in Colorado, California, Washington, where it's become incredibly normalized incredibly normalized um it's just like everyone does it here and I, and I know people probably don't believe me when I say that nor do they even get it or understand but a large 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 portion of the population uses cannabis to and and in, to some capacity, whether whether it be just to like go to sleep at night, um, and and this goes for every job industry, like these business people, um, everybody, everybody. I'm, I'm not gonna get I'm not gonna get myself in trouble here, but everybody, <laughs> it's, it's like this weird, crazy thing here. It's like if you walk by someone on their porch smoking, like that is a normal thing. Like you wouldn't think twice about it. Yep. No, fully. I've always had this kind of beef where so many times in the outdoor industry and not just the outdoor industry, but there will be, you know, you'll have this amazing mission. Let's say there's some FKT that you've thought up that you're trying to get some sponsorship dollars to fund or whatever. And there'll always be that conversation. Well, this is a small industry. We don't have that kind of budget to put that in, but it's frowned upon when something, an outside in, entity may fund that which is going to bring up the entire outdoor industry, 
but they're kind of frowning on it. It's such a hypocritical relationship that I don't even want to get into that rabbit hole, but it's just been such a hard thing for me to swallow over the years. Yeah, and and I will say there's been some major changes and some in a, like a large amount of progression and who knows maybe maybe because of covid and this kind of downfall in the economy more states will legalize in a much faster um fashion now that you know cuz it's something that could could turn a, a local or state economy around in in a heartbeat if you're one of the first to jump on if you're one of the last to jump on like you're kind of just screwed like these states that that are going to wait and wait and wait it out there's going to be no like Right now, we get tourist dollars because of it. Now, as more states legalize, those tourist dollars leave. So you're the last state to do it. You're not. You're not going to make any extra, uh, you know, tax dollars off of it. So, I mean, it. But it, who knows? Maybe in the next year or two, we're going to see some major changes in uh, state legislation in some of these states that aren't legal yet. Yeah, I think in time. What about what's the difference between running high and runners high? Oh, um, runners high lasts for five minutes. Running high lasts for hours. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's you... why I love it when people's argument is, "Oh, I got natural runners high. Good for you, buddy." <laughs> <laughs> well, tell me about. I have done. Um, I have a sister-in-law who I, I crewed her at the Western States One Hundred. And she's went on to win some big races. She won UNT, UTMB a couple of years, Rory Bozio, and she inspired me to do an, a hundred miler. And so, not an avid runner at all. I'm kind of stocky. I'm more of a whitewater kayaker type. Um, so I trained up to do the Grindstone 100, which I was looking. You actually won that event. And one of the things through all my training, this is what I want to, and, and I'm wondering if you still get this as someone who has spent so much time on your feet and in the mountains, that emotional aspect of training and long distance running, I would find myself laughing, crying out loud, all these crazy emotions through the training process. Does that still happen to you? And is that across the board, an attraction to ultra running? Yeah, dude, nearly, nearly daily. That's funny. That's, that's just crazy. You say that all those emotions you just said, yes, nearly daily. I mean, and I think a lot of that is not ultra running itself. Um, that's just uh, just just extreme gratefulness for being here, man. Like I, I just I've always said I know I know where I was six seven years ago and what I would have done to be here now. So now I need to take advantage of that, and I'm incredibly grateful for it. And I mean, just uh, to be able to be alone and run through these mountains as like our own private private playground is incredible and yeah all those emotions still happen all the time even in races too um i try to limit those because that's no joke that's energy your body uses energy to like balance those emotions out so i mean in, in a race setting i really actually try quite hard to um stabilize all those emotions and and actually not have any of them interesting ah there's a pro tip right there Keep, yeah. keep that energy in your legs. Yeah. And, and, and it goes for both sides of those things that like extreme happiness as well as, um, uh, well, I guess they're both happiness when you either, if you're crying out of happiness or even if you're just, um, you know, 
yelling at the top of your lungs and extremely stoked like it's really good to kind of reserve all that like that's all energy that all your body has has a metabolic process that has to occur and that is all costing you Mm. what practical advice would you give to a young 19 year old avery sitting in indiana who wants to do a hundred miler um two things uh i was told this and i really didn't start implementing it until a few years ago and um consistent functional strength training really focusing on um strength through your glutes your hips your your ta um just like overall core strength uh and like sticking to it um and then also what i was told and then i did follow it and i would say that Progression is key. Progression and patience. Um, there's nothing like running 100 miles is cool and and it's fun and you know you get to go through all these amazing places and experiences and emotions during 100 miles. But like 50k can be a, such a similar experience. It's as hard as you make it. So if you're if you're 19 and you're building this progression towards a 100 mile race, well focus on the 50k first and like really dial that in and then do so for the 50 mile race. Um, but I think just like building in a very large, large, large aerobic base takes two, three or four years. Um, it's just, it's, it's easy. And like it happens all the time. I'm not going to name any names, but like people, people burn out by jumping into the hundred mile distance and, you know, they feel good. They're fresh because they haven't been doing ultra running for very long. And you can just like bang them out. Like you can do a bunch that's going to cost you in the long run. Um, and it does. And it never works. And there's been plenty of people to show for it. Um, if, if you want longevity, you know, show, show respect. Only do a few races a year. I mean, a, a really prime example is when you look at elite marathoners. They do two marathons a year. And yet we have a sport that is built around glamorizing and glorifying those who do 10 ultras. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't make any damn sense. And that's like, that's one of those big things that like it plays a pretty large role in like ultra runner of the year. Like, did you go out and win eight ultras? Like that's, it's not worth it. It's not worth it in the long run, but go for it if you want. Right. What if they wanted to turn it into a career, a full on lifestyle? What advice would you give them? dematerialize Mm, interesting (laughs) yeah um you know there's i i would say ultimately the reason why um i'm sitting where i am now without having to clock into a a nine to five is because i sacrificed and dematerialized um i don't see my friends as much i don't see my family as much i don't party almost ever but i get to do what i want to every single day and, um, you know, I don't, I don't have the latest Rolex or, you know, the sweetest Jordan collection, but like, I, like I said, man, I mean, you have to pick and choose what, what really, what really, really, really is making you happy. Um, and quite frankly, I will take the pay cut any day of the week to continue doing this over, uh, a new car and a nine to five. I love that dematerialize. That's going to have to go on uh, one of the Hammer Factor bumper stickers at some point. Um, 
What about the sport of ultra ultra running? What are some trends that you're seeing? Some interesting things come out. Uh, any interesting gear things that you're seeing? What's some what's some insider gossip within the ultra running community you can share with us, or the sport in general? Yeah, um, you know, like one of the coolest things I've I've really liked kind of the progression of um, what I've seen with runners specifically is this uh, transition into the winters doing um, skis, like snow sports. So ski mountaineering um, specifically. And I don't, I don't do uh, like schema or ski mountaineering racing because I snowboard, but um, I've, I've used this as a tool, like honestly from watching other like schema athletes and I've used split boarding and, and like winter mountaineering as a tool to progress my ultra running it gives me a chance to um recover and and relax the muscles that get used and abused for six seven months of the year pretty pretty hard and then um get to do something different all winter long it's low as far as it's majority low impact i guess it's kind of it depends on how hard you're going and what you're doing but um for the most part it's a pretty low impact sport um and it helps build a, a really, really strong, strong, strong aerobic base. It's actually been found that um, ski mountaineering, because it uses both the arms and legs, um, it's uh, it's the fastest and best way for a VO2 max increase, um, or in other words, like to get the most gains as an anaerobic athlete. Uh, uh, ski mountaineering is the best way to go. I don't do any of those workouts. I just go slow up the mountain and then charge down. Um, <laughs> but I think, I think that's been one of the coolest things that I've seen as a progression in the sport uh, is a lot of the a lot of runners switching over to snow sports in the winter. Cross training is invaluable, and it seems like almost every athlete or professional that we interview has some bit of cross training. That has really helped them with breakthroughs. Mental freshness comes back, you know, and just like that whole ability to, like you say, build up the base, step away from your, your main activity, and then come back with a new perspective, fresh, new ideals, and a, and a different way of looking at it. It's hmm. a appreciation too. This has been a great hour, hour and 15. Avery, is there anything else you'd like to add before we wrap this up? No, man, I just really appreciate you reaching out. Yeah, super cool. A lot of, uh, you know, love the Indiana roots, man. Yeah. <laughs> Is there any, uh, where can our, are you on Facebook, Instagram? Where can, uh, where can our listeners follow you? Oh, yes, I am on Instagram at Runnin' High. That's R-U-N-N-I-N High. And uh, Facebook, just Avery Collins. Um, I and then, uh, you know, I was going to say just one last thing. If, uh, if you are a young, say, 19, 20, 21-year-old runner, and um, if you were in the position I was at one point where I was digging quarters out of my car to pay for food um, and you can't go for a run because you don't have enough money to deal with the calorie deficit, feel free to reach out. I'd love to help out. Um, I, just, I just know what that was like when I was there, and that sucked. <laughs> love it. Love it. Close us down with uh, um, throwing out some sponsor shout outs here. Yeah. Um, big thanks to Solomon Running on the Footwear. Uh, One Farm by Way is my CBD supplement. And um, 
EvoLab. Uh, they make phenomenal um, cartridges for um, e-pens. And Athletic Brewing Company, a non-alcoholic beer sponsor of mine, they are phenomenal. Um, they make IPAs, double IPAs, golden ales, stouts. Like it's seriously the only NA beer company out there that is making a high-quality craft beer that tastes identical to a real beer. Um, and also a big shout-out to Mirror Energy Gels and Cranked Naturals uh, Hydration Mix. Sweet. Well, we're going to have to have you come back on the show after your trip to Nepal. I hope that happens. That's going to be incredible. Yeah. I hope it does too, dude. And uh, thanks for your time, man. Yeah, absolutely.